Hey everyone, welcome to Being Experiential Podcasting. I'm Bethany Evans and I'm here with my lovely co-host Aaron Pruitt and today we have a very special guest. So who do we have Aaron? We have the amazing and talented and highly trained Stephanie McBride and this topic is Ask Anything on Women's Health with Nurse Stephanie. So Stephanie, thank you for joining us. Of course. This is exciting. And Stephanie, well, as, as she starts answering questions, you'll see what a badass this woman is. So <laughs> she has multiple, the way, what she runs, multiple programs in hospitals. Which branch of the military were you in? Um, so I was in the Air Force for, um, I did a full 20 years. So I was, uh, I started out enlisted as a finance troop, and then I um, was accepted into like a bootstrap type of program to become a nurse. And I spent the last part of my career um, working as a labor and delivery nurse. And then I got into women's health, um, working all different areas, fertility, um, dysplasia, urology. um, And and then I ended up getting my um, women's health nurse practitioner degree. Um, and I've been doing that ever since. So wow, you are. This badass. is on. Yeah, total. And then on <laughs> top of having three children, right? Yeah. Well, we have four girls. Yep. Cool. So my stepdaughter is oh. um, about to be sixteen, and my oldest is about to be fourteen, and then eleven and five. So wow, July's a big month in our house. So. Uh, awesome. <laughs> so, and then also Stephanie carries an MSN, and you might have already said this, but. I don't translate well and W H N P and oh shit. Oh. And the reason why we asked Stephanie on, I was trying to make sure I read my notes. Um, <laughs> the why we asked Stephanie on is because we had the pussy book club and one of the things that came out of it, we had several things that come out of it. One was like shame of the body. So we've been having people on talking about that. And then the other piece was like, really what like health wellness and health and how do you have a healthy body healthy pussy so we were like we need to get someone on who really like this is what they study this is what they know and we can ask anything and so we have we actually bethany and i had to really like edit down if you could have seen how many questions we had we were like <laughs> Shit, that's gonna be a long Which goes to show you like i don't think that we we're not educated on our bodies enough, I think, especially as women, right? And I think we're so complex and I don't, I'm sure you'll speak to this, Stephanie, but it, like, I'm, I'm really curious, yeah, like to know the most common questions you get asked, right, mm-hmm. from women specifically and, and maybe your experience with how little we actually know about our bodies. <laughs> right, well, and I think so, and I, our, so first of all, hands down, like our bodies are, an amazing creation Um, and not to get into, you know, like biology and evolution, but just from, you know, at like 13 going through, you know, um, you know, puberty, starting to have menses when little boys are just like out, you know, kicking balls and throwing baseballs, like they don't have to think about any of these things. And then we segue right into our childbearing years. And that comes like a freight train, right? You know, your first baby in your world, (laughs) flipped upside down. And then, you know, what does your interval look like between, you know, your first and second, and then you're planning like miscarriages, loss, um, different things in there. And then you think, oh, I've got to, I've got the hang of this. 
and then comes along like perimenopause and menopause and the hell that that can be for some women. So, um, and oh, by the way, be, you know, a busy mom, have a career, raise your children. And oh, by the way, be a domestic goddess in the kitchen and uh, (laughs) a sex queen in the bedroom. Right. So a lot to navigate. So just a amen. bit. Amen to that. <laughs> so we're going to jump in because we do have so many questions for you. Okay. And then not only do we have questions, we have sub questions of questions. So oh, yeah. we made okay. ear off. Yeah. <laughs> this may be a part two. There may yeah. be a part two Definitely. to this. <laughs> we're going to yeah. take some notes too. So if we, yeah. like, that might sure. actually lead to other questions. Okay. Sure. So the first question that uh, women wanted to know our listeners was what is the most common health issue for women around sex? So I think um, that depends, I would say for, for what I've seen in the clinic um, with my patients is that depends on the age, like kind of where in that spectrum that person is, right? So if it's somebody who I'm seeing, you know, who's, you know, in her third trimester of her first pregnancy, and she may, one patient may tell me she's having the best sex of her life, which is, you know, due to that increased vascularity um, in that area. Right. Um, but the next person may come in and say, she can't do it. Like it's painful. Everything hurts. Her pelvis is sore. Um, you know, she's achy all the time. Um, and then into perimenopause and menopause, a lot of times women are plagued with vaginal dryness, um, and then loss of libido. Like they just don't have, um, I don't know it, sometimes it's a combination of energy, but sometimes it's desire too. Um, and whether that's kind of been in the relationship the whole time, um, kind of on the back burner, it, it manifests, um, up front during menopause. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause that actually leads to the other question is, um, one of our listeners, well, actually a couple of people asked, um, getting wet, basically you said vaginal dryness is anything medically that someone can do about it. I think there's, if you could answer it maybe in two ways is one is like, you just talked about relationship. If you've seen something mm-hmm. on maybe looking at the landscape of your life, like, is there something that's causing the turn on to be not turned on and medically, is there something to explore? So medically more in the perimenopause and menopausal years, there's a decrease in estrogen, which, um, it, which leads to a decrease in vaginal lubrication. This is also the same thing that takes place when we're breastfeeding. Um, so I always tell patients like <clears throat> lube is your friend and I'm not talking necessarily like, like all lubes are not created equal. Um, I have, yeah, what's one- the best one to use? I was yeah. going to say, <laughs> that's <laughs> a question. Um, Uber Lube is fantastic. Um, you can get Uber it Lube. online. Yeah, it's U B E R L U B E. I I found this yeah. stuff. It, it was brought, um, I learned about it at a sexual health conference that I did um, early on as a nurse practitioner. This stuff is life changing. Like mm-hmm. it's not that, you know, sticky, you put it on and it's just everywhere and then it's sticky and it then turns into more friction. It, it has like a silicone base to it. So it really just helps things kind of slide. Um, if you're a runner, you've used like the thigh stuff that comes in like the deodorant stick. It just kind of allows, you know, the skin to move freely. Um, it's just good stuff. There's no shame in the lube game. So, (laughs) so I, I'm a very hippie 
person and I use coconut oil a lot um, mm-hmm. for that kind of stuff. Is that like, is that, I mean, have you heard of anything like, is that bad? Yeah. I don't think it's bad because I know it's natural, but. Right. And you're not using it necessarily internally. You're using it externally, correct? Yeah. 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 So I think um, as long as it's being used externally, okay. I do feel like I have had patients where they tried that and they were still experiencing pain or the the skin would have fissures or tears, like mm. micro tears in it. Mm. And then that becomes really uncomfortable. Like as you yeah. sweat or when you urinate, like that tissue, if it's close to the urethra, you can get that burning sensation. Right. Um, so if that happens, like if you're using coconut oil and you're still having issues, I would recommend a good lubricant. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And the other piece of this, so let's <clears throat> talk about relationships because this is like one of the things I think this is probably one of my most, um, uh, most talked about things behind exam room doors. So women are, we're exact opposite in men when it comes to sex, like men are like light switches, like you rub their thigh or you wink at them and they are like, you know, locked (laughs) and loaded, ready to roll. Right. And women, we, we kind of are like a cold car on like an early morning, right? (laughs) Like we need a little bit of time to kind of get, you know, revved up, if you will, like warmed up. Um, And so if you're having like intimacy issues or you're having dryness, it's important to kind of look at that foreplay. And I know that sounds really cliche, but that turn on phase in the beginning, that foreplay is essential to women. And honestly, if there's any men out here listening and you're trying to like find an easy, quick way to like, you know, turn up your sex life foreplay is where it's at, like kiss her neck, you know, give her a back rub, like, you know, get her revved up. Like we just don't work the same way men do. So amen to that. Yeah. So another thing was any suggestions on increasing sex drive? So I think for, I think what I would say to this point is, you know, a lot of times women, you brought up body shaming early Mm -hmm. in the, like earlier in the podcast, And I think, you know, as women, we spend so much of our time taking care of, you know, our families, the dogs, cooking dinner, taking, making sure that, you know, the license plates are renewed, right? We do all of the things and then we neglect ourself, like our self-care. And one of the big things of that is exercising and like making sure that we're getting those good endorphins and eating right. Um, and all of this relates back, um, because if you feel good about yourself and you're more confident in like the way you feel, I think that increases your desire and you're willing, you're like, you're wanting your partner, mm-hmm. you know, and, and men have a play in that too. It's kind of like, you know, as a labor and delivery nurse, when we're sending these patients home, we tell the husbands, like, you know, one way you can be involved with breastfeeding is in the middle of the night when the baby wakes up, go get the baby and bring it to your partner so she can nurse, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And men the same way, like, hey, cook dinner every Tuesday and Thursday so your wife can go, you know, go hit the gym or like we were talking about, Erin, go hit an orange Mm -hmm. theory class so she can get like that sense of who she is as an individual back and and watch, you know, that desire come back. So yeah. we, we get lost in all of that. It's a lot of stuff to unpack. So yeah. Yeah. 
someone asked is, is there a difference to, in her relationship and her sexual history was there felt like there was a difference of sex drive between men and women, men having actually more. Is that medically true? If it so, is. yeah. Why? Yeah. Well, because men are testosterone driven, like from, a, mm. you know, from a sexual hormone standpoint, you know, men, you know, they have where men have like testosterone levels, you know, in the seven hundreds. Right. And women, mm. ours are somewhere, you know, 15 <clears throat> to I think 40, maybe would be the top end. Um, and men are biologically driven just, you know, like they, their, their whole thing is quantity, right? Like they just mm. want a lot of sex where women, it's more about quality. And for some women, it's about like that connection. Um, I think there's a lot of women that if they don't feel intimately connected to their partners, that desire decreases even further. Mm-hmm. So, but there is definitely biology there. So, Yeah, but I think that speaks a good, uh, a point of like, women are more emotionally driven in it. Like we want to feel emotionally connected and that actually turns us more on than just physical. Whereas men are a little bit more physical. Like you said, you could just touch them and they <laughs> they're ready to go. <laughs> then I just listened to another podcast. Um, and it, this, it was a, she's an instructor, I think at Harvard. And she was saying like, men just have this biological urge to release and women mm. are not necessarily like that. Like our, even our orgasms are different. Like women typically have longer orgasms and men it's like, boom, it's over, you know, it's very quick. So, right. But again, that testosterone difference between the two genders. Mm, Interesting. Interesting. All right. We're moving topics. So um, can you break down uh, someone asked if you could break down miscarriages, why they happen uh, what in your experience has them not be t- like talked about <clears throat> as much as they happen? Like they're so common, but as a society, um, one of our listeners felt like, and I think this is pretty common, that it's not talked about and why, but biologically, and then why is there like, it's just kind of silenced in our society that you've seen. Yeah. Um, it is very common. Um, it's very, very common. Um, it's, Unfortunately, I, there's a lot of genetics in the early embryonic period that, you know, it it takes place and we don't really know what causes a good amount of these, um, miscarriages. Mm -hmm. Um, what I would say to anybody out there who has either been diagnosed with PCOS polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, that, yeah, yeah, that is, have that. Clinically, that's the number one culprit for me when I see miscarriages in those mm. patients. And so here's the thing. If you're a PCOSer and you come into my clinic and you're telling me, I really want to get pregnant. I've been trying for a year. It's not happening. Um, I, the way, what I need you to do is drop some LBs. Um, and when it, mm. when I say LBs, I don't mean like, I need you to go lose 40 pounds. Really. Most women can conceive if they lose five to 10% of their body weight. Um, and women with PCOS aren't always super obese. It's a lot of it is diet and that insulin resistance that is in their bodies. Um, so if you begin to exercise and you follow like a keto diet or a low carb diet, like a diabetic diet, um, you typically they will conceive. Um, and the problem is, is 
if you conceive that way, you need to continue that lifestyle so that hormonally your body continues to do the right thing hormonally. If you get pregnant and then you stop exercising or you, you, you know, start eating, you know, cold cereal for every meal, your body's going to go back to the way it was before you did those changes and you're going to lose the baby. So it's a progesterone issue. Um, mm. and it's very common. What cause is so PCOS, what causes it? It's diet or like uh, it's, genetic yeah, so or, um, I don't, I don't know that the genetic piece is a big part of it. I think it's more, um, diet and lifestyle. Um, and really what it is, is your, your ovaries produce just a bunch of follicles and none of them ever really like, it's almost like a race with your ovaries every month. Right. So your, your body is producing follicles and the biggest one is the one that you ovulate, right? That's the egg that's released from your ovary. And in PCOSers, we create a bunch of like, um, follicles, but there's never really a clear winner. It's like a tie. Does that make sense? <clears throat> so that's where the issues with fertility come into play. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, interesting. That's actually more given I had, I'm assuming I might still have it. If I had it, is it a lifetime thing that you have? It depends if you change your ways, right? If you, um, if you get your body weight down to a normal BMI and you're exercising and you're eating right, um, a lot of times your symptoms can go away. Um, some women will end up needing like a medication called spirlactolone to um, decrease like hair growth because um, mm -hmm. some PCOSers will get like heritsuism where they, they have really dark whiskery like hair growth on their the sideburns, their chin, hmm. or even like a mustache on their back sometimes um, or around their nipple. Yeah. Holy so. heck. That's <laughs> yeah. and huh. Unfortunately, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Those of us that have had the diagnosis of PCOS um, are more likely to become type two diabetics later in life. So it really is one of those things that you really have to make that lifestyle change um, early. Oh, that's an interest. So, so that's a big indicator. Oh, that's interesting. Indicator. I've never heard that one, but that's good to know. Um, is there anything that if, if uh, one of our listeners has had a recent miscarriage, anything that you would recommend doing just to be aware of and or if they are struggling, what they could do on the medical side? when you say struggling, do you mean like with the emotional fallout of the yeah. miscarriage? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I think with the emotional and then like any advice, if they had a miscarriage and they're intending, they want to get pregnant, mm -hmm. like that maybe what they could do, um, to take care of themselves and maybe to get back if they choose to get back in the game and try again, yeah. So I think it's one of the things that I always, these are hard conversations, right? Mm -hmm. To call somebody and tell them, you know, that your hormone levels are telling me that you're going to, you're having a miscarriage. But one of the things that I, I caution patients um, is, you know, anxiety or stressing about getting pregnant is not going to help you get pregnant. So really kind of going back to that self-care thing, like making sure that emotionally, like you talk to a friend or you talk to your, you know, if you're close with your mom and making sure that you give yourself a chance to digest what has just happened for you, because it's a lot, it's a, it's a, I've had uh, five different miscarriages 
And it's a lot to, to kind of digest. And it's hard to not feel like what is wrong with me or what am I doing wrong? And a lot of it isn't anything purposeful. A lot of it is just, like I said, those genetic keys just don't fit right in the beginning. Um, and it, and if you're somebody who's trying to support somebody who's had a recent loss, it's not okay to say things like, oh, you're young, you've got time or, you know, well, it's better that it happened early rather than later. Like that's not really what they want to hear when they're reeling and they're going through this. So yeah. um, you really have to get your mind in a good place and be ready to try again. So, but I also understand working in the, fer the fertility world that hell hath no fury, like a woman who wants to be pregnant. So <laughs> it's very true. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to do rapid fire fenestration questions. Okay. All right. So can you rank the different fenestration tools um, that you would recommend or anything that you're concerned about? So we've got tampons, diva cup pads, and I think it was, a. Um, so what would you, if you were to suggest, or what would you suggest for maybe body types or age? Yeah. Age, yeah. So this is a very personal, um, you know, choice. And I think it's all about how comfortable you are with your body. Um, and I'm in the throes of this right now in my house, like my, my, my 14 year old, um, clearly she's been having a cycle for a while and we've, um, she plays sports. And so we had to introduce things like tampons and, um, she's tried the cup. Um, and I think for her navigating the cup was a little bit harder, um, but the thing, and moms, if you're listening, make sure that you talk to your girls about, you know, changing these items out frequently. And if you're using the cup, just, you know, emptying it and rinsing it throughout the day. Um, cause there are infections that you can get if they're left in too long. Um, and we don't want anything bad to happen. Um, and then, you know, tampons, like when you're like age-wise, like as far as teens, it's all about the maturity level of the, of the patient, as well as like lifestyle. Um, culturally, there are some implications there too. Um, you know, Middle Eastern cultures and the broken hymen thing, they may not be um, willing to use a tampon. So then in that case, you know, you'd want to talk to them about frequency of changing their pads. Um, but yeah, it's really a personal decision. I do think the Diva Cups are amazing. Um, I like that they are low impact on the environment. Um, and I also like that they kind of give you that freedom that, you know, you can, you can go about your day and be as active as you'd like, and you're not tied to necessarily having to change it or leaking through. Um, there's also those um, underwear, and I don't have any personal experience with these, but those underwear that, um, you know, they're kind of like a built-in pad. Um, yeah, I use those. I you, love them. Yeah. I love them. Yeah. yeah. So, and I'm not sure as far as like, are, are they are they as good as like a diva cup when it comes to like saturating or? With a diva, with a, with a cup, because that's what I started. I did that before I got the period panties. I, um. I would leak actually, like it, it would okay. depend on, I don't know if it's just like the shape, the size of, it depends on the size of the cup. Right. And I think also your uterus and, yeah. and all of that, um, the size of your opening and whatnot. So I would actually leak sometimes if it wasn't positioned. Right. Um, and then I just got to the point where I didn't want anything up there when I was bleeding and I just would prefer to have it, you know, 
it can be caught yeah. by something. And then again, I'm really, I want, I like to be environmentally conscious. So I was like the period panties, it's an investment. They're a little bit expensive, but you know, it, what you're saving, right. With the environment. And then also like money you're spending every month too. Um, it yeah. adds up and it becomes, um, worth it. But, and so they have yeah. different, just like pads, right. And tampons, it's like different sizes, hold different amounts. So Yeah. Yeah. And you need to be, I mean, like one of the things, especially with teens, like helping them navigate this stuff, right? Like think of it, like when you send your husband to the store to buy your tampons, like you're really clear about what size you want him to get. Right. So, and with your teens, like your young girls, I say teens, but my, my 10 year old started at 10. So this could be earlier than teens. So helping them navigate this stuff, like letting them know it's not okay to put a super tampon in, you know, at six 30 in the morning before you go to school and not do anything with it until you come home. Like we right. want to teach them better habits. Right. Cause so. there's, um, what's it called? It's like toxic shock syndrome or yeah. something yes. like that that yeah. can be developed because of that. Yeah. That's what I always used to read. And I'm like, I was terrified of doing it. So I like, yeah. change my tampons all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, just good personal hygiene. So, um, but if I can throw in there um, that one of the things I see a lot in the clinic is women who will come in with um, frequent like bacterial vaginosis or frequent yeast infections. Mm. And the f- first question I always ask them is how are you cleaning yourself? Mm. Um, so douching is no bueno. Like I will forever have a job because people will not listen when I say <laughs> no woman needs to invert like or summer in her vagina, right? Like yeah. you need just water and, you know, maybe a light soap, nothing scented. Um, the less you do to it, the better off you are. It think yes. of it like its own ecosystem. You want to kind of just rinse her off and leave her be. So mm-hmm. absolutely. Well, yeah, it's like, and it's mostly just like the outside, right? It's like, obviously if you have hair, yeah. you want to make sure you're cleaning the, the outside and then just, yeah, not, not nope, no, no, no cleaning up in there. <laughs> Nothing no. up in there. <laughs> Yeah. Less is more here, lady. Yeah. Less is more like spreading things apart to make sure, you know, the old little pieces of toilet paper or whatever, you know, you sweated through the day, but you don't need to scrub her. She doesn't need a ton of soap. Um, yeah. I I had a client who used, um, Cause she said that she had like a, she's like, look, I was just nervous about smelling. And she had like a, a vaginal wipe, but just exterior that mm-hmm. made her feel less. Yeah. Whatever. I, mean, I, th- I think as long as they're not scented um, and you're, I, we use baby wipes here in my house and I teach my, you know, I taught my girls that, you know, especially when you're on your cycle in order to like yeah. kind of keep things a little bit cleaner. Um, and baby wipes, you know, we all have our personal preference on those too. It's, we like Huggies or we like Pampers or the Costco brand, whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, and we use them all the time here. Um, you know, so it's not, I think wipes are fine. Um, it's a good in between. So, okay. and I think for my teen, you know, it gives her a little bit more confidence at school, um, to know that she can wipe and feel cleaner too. So, yeah. Yeah. And then how often do you do have women like come to you about like smell or, you know, like, so obviously if there's some, a smell that's off, that usually means something is happening internally or something you need yeah. to address. 
Yeah. So a couple of different causes of, you know, bacterial vaginosis can happen. Um, if you, um, like if you're having multiple partners, um, whether you know you are, or you don't know you are, um, and I say that, I say that kind of lightheartedly, but, um, a lot of the times when I see patients back for the, you know, second, third visit and they have BV again, but it's been two, three weeks in between, um, either we didn't clean up the infection the first time. So we can try a different medication or I will kind of broach this situation like, okay, so you are in a relationship and you only have one partner. Are you sure that that partner isn't having additional partners? Um, Cause boys are kind of gross that way, right? Like, I don't know. Um, so you, you can, you can definitely get it that way. Um, uh, sex toys are another way of, mm. um, you know, making sure that you're cleaning those appropriately and everybody needs a good vibe. So just make sure you're taking <laughs> care of it. I love it. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. I have a question. Um, my daughter sent was how the hell do you keep a pad to stay in place? <laughs> Yeah. Like, do you yeah. think she'll know this? I'm like, I will ask. You don't. You get period panties. <laughs> yeah. I would, I would roll the dice on the period panties there. Yeah. Yeah. If there's an uncomfortableness with, you know, introducing tampons, um, you know, you could definitely try the period panties. Um, pads are, pads are painful. I, I, I don't know. Um, when my oldest was like, you know, I, I'm having problems keeping them. She plays softball. And mm. she's like, I can't, I keep leaking through. Oh yeah. Sliding all over. Yeah. Um, we just went straight to tampons. So yeah. yeah, we have, my daughter did water polo in her first cycle. She had two oh. tampons and I was like, well, I know yeah. there's nothing you can do about it. Totally. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think she was talking about like at night. So maybe we'll get the period panties. I'll ask you back yeah. to me. And we'll definitely, yeah. for those who are listening, um, I'm making a note to post some of our recommendations. Yeah. Um, we'll post it uh, in social media when we post the show. So when you listen to this, we'll definitely talk about the lube and period panties. So yes. all of you are like, what the hell? I want this recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're out of ideas for Father's Day, go buy your husband some Uber lube. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Ooh, babe. Yeah. <laughs> I think I might need to get myself some of that. There you go. <laughs> Even though I'm not I'll having sex, but I'll just hold on to it until I am. <laughs> it's magic. Like it works so good with your toys. Like it's, okay. I don't know. We use it every time. Like I just, it's habit did, now. It's, did you say, is it water-based or you said it's silicone-based? It's silicone-based. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, um, I've never had any patient come back and tell me they've had any sort of irritation or right. problems with it. That's so. always like my fear of like with anything around there, you know, like around <laughs> my pussy is like around there. <laughs> around there, like no matter what it is, if a guy's like talking about, you know, I'm, I'm always like, are your hands clean? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Fair question, right? Fair question. Uh, yeah. I'm like, did you, yeah. when was the last time you washed your hands? <laughs> so I think about that stuff about it getting irritated because it's so uncomfortable, like yeast infections and like yeah. things are, it's really uncomfortable guys. It like oh, it sucks. Yeah. yeah. So, well, yeah. and then you try to find a same day appointment to get in to talk to somebody for some medicine. Yeah. For yeast yeah. Infection, right. right. Yeah. No, you're oh. having to go to the store and buy over the counter stuff and it's embarrassing. And I remember when I was younger, when I was in like in my twenties, like early twenties and I would have to go cause I had a yeast infection. I'd have to go, I'd go to like a store that I knew I wouldn't like run into anybody. <laughs> 
<laughs> and buy something and right. oh yeah I remember telling my doctor when I was younger and I was like listen and it was like the third time I was like listen because I had jaw surgery and so I was on oh, medication oh. something was causing it yeah. and I was like this is not a new rodeo just call just because I was like I think it was in college I was like just call mm-hmm. the freaking thing in like I don't yeah. need to come in you and I both know I know what I have right just yeah. tell me what to give me the drugs yeah I, yeah <laughs> And there, there is some merit behind that. Anytime you're prescribed an antibiotic, if you're somebody who's sensitive um, yeah. or prone to yeast infections, just ask for the diflucan. Um, the other thing though, that I maybe should mention is if you're somebody who's plagued with recurrent yeast infections, you really want to have your hemoglobin A1C um, drawn and looked at to make sure that you don't have some underlying like pre-diabetes or type mm. two diabetes issues going on. Um, I have diagnosed that a couple times, um, based on frequent, um, yeast infections. Mm, so that sugar in your bloodstream, the, when you have that increase in sugar, it just feeds the yeast. So are there some natural ways that like, cause I know I've heard that like, um, cause pH balance is really Brandy. important, right. Mm-hmm. For your, for your pussy. And so like, how can people, how can women like make sure their pH is balanced or how do you tell if it's off? Right. And things they can eat, like stuff like that. Yogurt is always a good thing. Like, and when I say yogurt, I'm not talking like the high sugar, you know, um, heavy carb yogurt. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But the, you know, I think I, I do a lot of the light and fit. Um, my mother-in-law swears by Activia that Mm. good bacteria in your gut really helps, um, establish a solid bacteria in, in the vagina. So, Mm -hmm. um, yogurt's a good thing. Um, I'm trying to think what other homeopathic, I think avoiding things that are scented, um, a lot of chemical type things, like we talked about earlier, the soaps and things, um, and douching for the love, <laughs> just stop it, lady. Stop it. You really uh, have a, women who still come into you and tell you that they douche and stuff? All I, the time. Really? All the time. Why don't they, they just take have, it off this out of the store? Well, we know how, I wonder what's the age range there, right? So Oh, um, so uh, some of it is a culture thing because okay. there's more like within certain races, it's more prevalent, mm-hmm. um, than other races, but, um, it's an education thing too, right? Like some right. women feel, um, I've had women tell me that they felt dirty after having intercourse with their partners. And so they'll mm. do shit then like, gotcha. but to deal with, uh, yeah, just don't do it. Don't do it. Just stop. can, can semen throw off that too. Like I've heard that semen can throw off your balance there too and cause infections too. Especially with new partners. Um, you're, yeah. So if you're an old fuddy duddy like me and you've had the same partner for, you know, um, it's not going to happen. But if you, like, if I were to go and, you know, have a new partner, definitely an increased chance in having, you know, some type of reaction to that. Um, And you're, your body gets used to it over time, but initially. Yeah. We're going to say, oh, here, this fucking semen's in again. All right. Yeah, we <laughs> I got guess this. we're just, yeah, I guess we're just going to get used Freshy. to it. I guess, she, I guess she's uh, with this guy still. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll just roll with it then. Yeah, again, and he doesn't wash his hands, but we've got that those antibodies built up now, little dirty boy. Right. <laughs> okay. So we have some questions. We had um, kind of grouped these questions is um, how do we advocate several women asked in different ways? So I try to put it into a 
some type of questions. How do we advocate for ourselves with doctors or medical professionals, especially around the common need to blame demonstration for some issues they bring up? Like what I saw was consistently women going in and, and feeling like the first line of defense a medical professional responds to an issue is are you on your period so both like psychologically and physiologically and i feel like and they were basically there's a level of frustration i think this might actually be one of the most common questions that was asked mm-hmm. um and that feels like like having your period is this catch-all for blame everything on it yeah yeah, yeah. it's just because of my cycle Right. So remember, you know, a lot of times, um, I think we lose sight of, or we don't think of it this way, but your healthcare is a business, right? So, and in the same way, I would tell you, you know, no two nurse practitioners are created equal, no two physicians are created equal. And so you, if you feel that way, like if, you know, you go see Dr. A and you feel like he blew it off and just blamed it on your period, you need to find, like, you need to go shop around, talk to people. Mm -hmm. Um, Word of mouth is huge. Um, You know, patients know where they feel taken care of. Um, And I think sometimes um, you, you just have to kind of, I don't want to say bounce around a little bit, but you have to find somebody that you feel like they hear you. Well, you go Um, shopping for it, right? Like, I think we forget that sometimes we don't have to just be stuck with the, the one provider, like healthcare yeah. provider or dentist or whatever, like that we get the first one we see, right? If we don't exactly. feel comfortable with that person, we feel like they don't have good bedside manner, right. you know, then go find someone else. Right. <laughs> and you may find too, you know, like a lot of times women, um, and I, from the outside looking in and somebody who moves, you know, all the time, you know, having been in the military, I've, you know, met and established care with many different providers, but a lot of times what I saw with my patients is like, they will just go to the same OBGYN that their mom went to when they, Mm. when the mom delivered her, and it may not necessarily be the same fit. And then, you know, there's late, like there's newer evidence-based information out there. Is that provider staying current? Um, and then, you know, also consider, um, you know, your, your nurse practitioners, your midwives and your, um, physician assistants sometimes, you know, yeah, we're not physicians. We can't do surgery and we don't, you know, I, as a nurse practitioner don't deliver babies, but we have seen a lot of patients. We have, you know, we've delved into this. We've dedicated our lives and our careers to, to providing excellent patient care. And I think one of the things that patients don't understand is that if you come in to see us and we know that you need additional care, we can refer you straight to a physician within our practice. Um, but we kind of, we know when we're beat, does that make sense? But we can do a lot yeah. of the things um, along the way. So. Actually, it's been mine and a lot of my friends' preference to go to nurse practitioners or midwives. I just felt like uh, it's like like boots on the ground. Like I felt a little different than a doctor. I think I had one doctor who I went to because I had polycystic whatever I had. Ovarian. <laughs> yeah, ovarian. Um, and then and he was a specialist, but I wasn't jiving with him, but he had a midwife and we, him and I agreed that I would just go see her. And if there was an issue, she could relate to him. Cause I was like, you are annoying. Well, yeah. I I feel like at some point, if you're like a male, 
even like if you specialize in that and you're an OBGYN, I feel like at some point you got to feel like, am I really, can I really help women if I can't, if I don't fully understand what they're experiencing? I mean, like, yes, I get they can because they've learned a lot, but sometimes you, you, you know what I mean? Never, okay, I have said more people between my legs with miscarriages, trying to get pregnant, going to fertility clinic. I have not, I've had more women be more compassionate and like, oh, yeah. maybe I'm not the right than male. Every male that has been between my legs yeah. thinks he's meant to be there and he's the <laughs> solver. And I probably have like, I don't know, like five or six male doctors. Yeah. And I was just, and I, so being someone, I just prefer women. I feel like. Right. That's what I'm saying. I would too. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. because I feel like they, they understand they have, they have one. So they get it. They experience yeah. the same things I am experiencing. So that's why they have more compassion. Yeah. I've seen it both ways professionally. I mean, I, I have some, um, like I've honestly, I've worked, one of the ones that blew my mind the most was working with a male OBGYN who wouldn't prescribe birth control because of his, um, his own religious beliefs. And I'm like, uh, okay. So not all of us want to be, you know, a family <laughs> of 12. Um, right. Right. You have. Um, Interesting. Right. But I've also worked with male physicians who were very delicate and, you know, um, and then, you know, the opposite as well. So, but I do agree. I think there is something to be said that, you know, um, having a vagina of your own kind of makes you understand. Right. Yeah. I mean, I have, yeah, I had, I had an experience with a, a male. He was old, he was older. So it's, I think sometimes too, if when you're older, say like you have your own kids, if you're a male or, you know, like you just life experience. Um, but he was very compassionate with what I was experiencing and um, was very nice to me. And I just remember him being very sweet. And I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. and sometimes I'm like, they're too cute to look at my parts. Right. Right. Like, oh my God. Seriously. That's the real thing. Like I it don't, is. I, the only man that's that cute to me that gets to look at that is the one I'm married to. Like sometimes right. I'm just like, okay, I can't like, you're great. <laughs> I know. Right. So I'm just going to so put that true. out there because I've had patients say that to me. So I've experienced that too, where I'm like, really seriously, this guy is going to be the one giving me a pap right now. <laughs> right. right. I want to go in and talk about my hemorrhoids that are killing me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question. Hemorrhoids. Why don't they get rid of them? Why do so many women have to like live with it unless it is a problem? Like if, if yeah. they're like, yeah. My friend actually, so I was actually just talking to her about it last night is like, I don't know. She was, I think what she was saying is that it happened during, like it can happen during birth and it can Labor, be yeah. there, but then yeah. it like, doesn't come out until later or like something, I don't know, something like yeah, that. You live with it for at least uh, my understanding medical profession is like, is it bugging you? No. Okay. Then there's nothing. Right. Do. Yeah. I'm, how do you get them to go away? <laughs> well, they, so, um, the key to hemorrhoids is like making sure that you're taking care of your diet, um, and not becoming constipated. So making sure that you're getting enough fiber every day and drinking enough water, um, because anything that basically stops you up is going to exacerbate your hemorrhoids. Right. Um, and I've seen them, you know, especially on labor and delivery, you know, some women will get like, um, varicosities, like just in their, you know, vaginal area where the veins are just really, um, they're, they're very painful and they become overwhelmed. Um, they're congested. Um, and then the hemorrhoids, you know, that, is very common after childbirth and everything's angry down there after childbirth. But <laughs> I was going to uh, say, cause I know that in the hospital, so I did have a C-section, so I didn't have him naturally, but, um, 
I know that, and I, I've heard other women talk about this is like, you can't leave the hospital until you poop. They have to make sure that you can poop yeah. before you leave after giving birth. And so is it common? It's common for, is it just because of all like the trauma or whatever that it's like inflammation? Like what is it that, that causes it to kind of get upset oh. down there? Your colon, I guess, is your colon yeah. upset? Well, so the anesthetics that we use, um, whether, you know, it's a general anesthesia to put you to sleep in the situation mm. of an emergency C-section or the <clears throat> medication that anesthesia uses in an epidural or a spinal mm. C-section, they can all cause a lot of constipation. Gotcha. Um, additionally, the pain medications that we give you. So mm. if you had a C-section and you're taking Percocet, right, mm -hmm. um, that can dry you out and, you know, make, it's okay. just a side effect of the medication. So, gotcha. and you know, C-sections, like those are major abdominal surgeries. Like we yeah. were like, Oh, I had a C-section and no big deal. No, that's like legit major abdominal surgery. If you've never yeah. seen a C-section, like they, um, yeah, they're pretty, they're pretty crazy. So yeah, I know my ex-husband was like, yeah. Telling me about how like all of my organs were sitting outside of my body. <laughs> well, at least like, your uterus. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I had uh, my appendix taken. I recovered so much faster from that an emergency appendectomy than I did from a C-section. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then why are they so much more common? Our C-sections is it because we're having babies later? Is it the meta? Is it easier? Are people requesting it? Like I know for me, I had. Um, oh God, now I'm going to forget. I feel like I'm like one medical problem after another when it comes to baby making, <laughs> but. Um, where the wall, the it comes off the, oh shit, the lining is coming off. It's um, pla uh, plantar fasciitis. Oh, no, no, that's my foot. I don't know what that is. I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't what? know what this. I'm all plantar fasciitis. I don't um, know. I had like after you delivered, like with no the before they had to they had to induce me a month early because the the sack or something is oh shit the placenta. Are you talking about? Is it the placenta wall coming or something is, so I don't think of it. Was this after, was this after your C-section? No, it was before I was wore about a two or three weeks before they induced me. They were like, oh, you have, um, Okay. Uh, when I think about it, <laughs> she had something. I'm drawing blanks because nobody's going to induce you after like a partial eruption. So I'm like, I'm, I'm no, patient. no, it wasn't an eruption. Okay. It was um, whatever. I'll ask you preeclampsia. Okay. Preeclampsia. Thank you. Oh yeah, pre e. Ooh. Um, what is yeah. that? So preeclampsia <laughs> is early. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> <So> <laughs> It's honestly, it's one of my biggest projects right now at the facility I work at. There is a huge push in the United States to really um, increase our level of awareness and our um, time to treat um, for preeclampsia. So preeclampsia is a disorder of the vessels. Um, and basically the patient will present with um, very high blood pressure. So um, anything 160 systolic um, or 110 diastolic um, or higher. Um, and a lot of times this can happen. So ladies listen, because this can happen while you're pregnant. This can happen while you're in labor and this can happen up to six weeks after you go home. Really? So the other symptoms that you'd want to be looking for are visual changes, like seeing spots. I've had patients tell me they felt like they saw traces 
um, uh, right upper quadrant pain. So directly under your right breast, um, headaches that won't go away with like hydration and Tylenol, um, really bad swelling of the, your hands or your face. Um, and preeclampsia can be deadly. Um, if you don't get the blood pressures under control, um, in a timely fashion, the patient can seize. Um, so in the, um, antepartum, like if this happens, you know, to somebody who's at home or, you know, they don't know the symptoms, they don't know what's going on and they have a seizure, the blood flow to the baby is compromised. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's really, um, it's one of the number one killers of women in the United States right now. Um, and so part of this is, you know, patient education, teaching everybody about the signs and symptoms of it, but also in the medical community, recognizing that, yes, this person's in pain. And so we would expect her blood pressure to be a little bit more elevated, but is there something else going on that we're missing? Because you really want to treat it and get those blood pressures down as soon as possible. Um, and we do a battery of labs to, to confirm the diagnosis, but um, it's changed a little bit in the last decade. We don't necessarily wait for confirmatory labs before we treat. So, and is, is this more common just like, again, like with other things, is it lifestyle diet? Is it, or is it genetic? Like what? Is, yeah. Are some women more apt to have it than others. Yeah. So your first time moms, so women that are either really young um, like our teenage moms, um, they're more likely to have it as well as our advanced maternal age. So anybody over 35, mm. um, and then typically if you have it in one pregnancy, we're really cautious with any subsequent preg like pregnancies, um, we would have a low threshold for any type of blood pressure issues. Um, and then if you have preeclampsia, um, it is good practice to have an induction around the 37, 37th week of pregnancy. So it just depends on the patient, what their labs look like, um, and, you know, if they're having any of those symptoms. Okay. Is there something, because I'm definitely steeped in reading, especially with all Black Lives Matter, looking at, I'm currently reading Cass, which is an amazing book. But one of the things that I've read is that we actually have with African-American women, there's a higher death rate, uh, child. Um, there's basically an increase in death to the mother and to the child or medical issues. Is this, I, when you started talking about preeclampsia, I was like, is this related? Is it, I, is, do you have any insight on that? Because I remember just being so surprised yeah. that there was, a difference based on skin, you know, skin color. Yeah. And there is a difference. Um, and this is one of the, the, like, if I told you what my pet project was, this is it. Um, so African-American women, regardless of education level, regardless of income, regardless of access to healthcare, regardless of social economics, any type of social economic situation are four times more likely to die on a labor and delivery unit than their white counterparts. Um, and weird. yeah, so here's the deal. So they're more likely to have preterm labor, right? And I've been studying this since back in like 2008. Um, this has been, like I said, one of the things that I really find disturbing in my, like in my business, if you will. Um, so they're more likely to have preterm labor, um, which means delivery of a baby who potentially is not a viability, right? So somebody who comes in and 
you know, we can't stop labor and the baby's 21 weeks, you know, there's nothing we can do. We don't have equipment that small to save that baby. Mm. Um, the other piece is, um, a lot of the research shows that black women will not seek healthcare. What they, what they will do, um, they won't seek it right away. What they will do is they statistically will call four to five different people and talk about what they're experiencing or their symptoms before they reach out to their medical community. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's, that's really insightful. Like it, it, it hurts my heart in a way because there's this innate mistrust, I think, with a lot of African-Americans, both male and female with the medical community. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, I understand it, right? Like the Tuskegee Airmen experiment, right? Like that stuff doesn't go forgotten, right? Like yeah. it's, it's very, and, and that was our government, right? <laughs> so, um, so I get the inherent um, reluctance, but it's really increasing their risk. Um, they are not being heard. So what we were talking about, like medicine being a business, um, mm -hmm. there's different documentaries out there of, you know, black women who, um, had went into their doctor's office two or three different times and were basically told, oh, you're fine, go home. And then they ended up with severe preeclampsia and seized at home. Um, it's, it's definitely one of the things, um, that is getting more limelight right now. A lot of states in the nation, California is ahead of this in so many ways. Um, the, it's called CMQCC, the quality or California maternal quality care collaborative. These guys are at the, these guys are the tip of the spear. Like California has made strides, um, with their maternity care and other states are kind of, um, getting on the page, if you will. Um, and they really highlighted the way people are dying in maternity. Um, and that's your preeclampsia, your hemorrhage, um, and sepsis. And they've created basically these safety bundles that it's, it's honestly like a checklist. It's an open book test. If you can just get your facilities to implement it and do the education with the staff, nursing, and the providers and get them on the page. So yeah, unfortunately, we've spent, you know, a better part of four or five decades repeating the same research to say that African American women are more likely to die in childbirth and in the antepartum. Um, but we haven't done anything about it. Mm. Well, because it's, it's pretty sobering and disheartening to hear the like, so far what the conclusions would be the reason that it's happening. And it's, it's completely prevent. Well, it's, it's almost, it's kind of, it's in I'm feeling like it's like an infection in basically our society so, of like it started so long ago that it's like how do we heal that right how do well, we heal that so that we start like because it, it is preventable well so here's and this is just Stephanie McBride's two cents because we've we've honestly eliminated all other causes of what right. could be the disparity and I feel like it really boils down to the generations of stress, whether you want to be like, just full out, they were, you know, these were, these were children of former slaves yeah. who endured physical atrocities that we couldn't even fathom today. Yeah. And that genetic stress, those genetic changes that happened generation to generation to generation we, we have studied that and we found those babies still carry 
higher, like higher stress levels. Does that make sense? Like, I can't remember yeah. the exact. No, it makes but... absolute sense. Yeah. We're intuitives. We're like, oh, we right. No, Well, like, yeah, in the energy world, right. <laughs> it's um, like, we yeah. know we carry stuff through our, from our mothers and our grandmothers, like absolutely it's passed yeah. down we to us. See, yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. I mean, it makes DNA. total sense. Yeah. With DNA with and people. ancestral generational. Yeah. yeah. Trauma. Yeah. yeah. Yes. But it's validating that it's you. It's seen on a medical level. You know, when you're seeing labs, you're like, okay, this is. Yeah. If that, yeah. If that isn't clear indication, like how mm-hmm. it affects somebody down the line and how much damage it's done. Right. Um, I don't. One see, of the I things that I have. Is. Yeah. One of the things that I professionally struggle with is, you know, our our mine our uh, minority populations that live in rural areas. You know, like are they really being heard? You know, what kind of access do they have? Or are they dealing, I'm going to use your example, Bethany, of, you know, the really old, you know, white OBGYN, who's the Mm -hmm. only one in town who hasn't read, you know, a medical research article in the last 20 years. Yeah. So that's the part that is really hard for me, but I, I, I can, I have to have hope that as providers, um, we become acutely aware of this. And if anything, we err on the side of caution every time. Yeah. Um, and again, that goes back to, I think just trusting for like teaching women or just people in general to trust their own bodies and what they're experiencing. And if you're not getting support from where you're, go- where you're going to get the- that support and they don't believe you, but you know, something else is happening. It's like, go find someone else who will believe you and listen to you. Absolutely. Yeah. I have one more question before we move on to the next topic of, um, cause we talked briefly about C-sections, um, C-sections. Can you, can you give birth naturally after having a C-section? Cause I know that a lot of doctors don't like, once you have a C-section, it's like, if you have children after that, you have to have a C-section again for every child. Like what have you seen basically yeah. there? So there's, um, we call it, so the first um, time that you attempt to have a vaginal delivery after a C-section, we call it a trial of labor um, Mm -hmm. after a C-section. And honestly, it really depends on the reason for your initial C-section. Like if you had, you know, um, if your baby's heart rate was down and it was an emergency situation, we had to get the baby out um, or or if it was a breach presentation and the recommendation at that time was to do a C-section, your subsequent pregnancies may not meet those same criteria. And so it is definitely an option to do a trial of labor. Um, And we, the facility that I work in, we have a pretty good, um, we call it a VBAC, a vaginal birth after Mm C-section rate. Um, Our percentages are pretty good. Um, Our our staff are really well-trained and versed at, you know, the things that could go wrong and like have a quick reaction time. Um, I would say that you, uh, you are just naturally at a higher risk of things like a uterine rupture, which is when that that C-section scar in the uterus, it basically opens back up. Mm. Um, and so you can have a lot of bleeding and it's a, it's an emergent dire situation. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and the, here's the thing, um, Cali- like, I want to say in California, there's a lot of facilities that do not allow that because it is, um, the risk is so much higher, um, than just having another repeat C-section. Um, so there are some facilities, um, that will not do them. Yeah. Right. That's what I just remember being in a, um, like a, it was a breastfeeding support group. Like when I was, after I had my son and I'm still in it, but, um, 
and that that was a, a topic of conversation a lot about uh the back like you said V-backs. and yeah v-backs so i was yeah. always curious and C-sections are something too that in the maternity world, we're paying a lot of attention to. We are trying to make sure that we're not doing, um, especially that initial, your first baby, we're really trying to make sure that we're doing everything we can to give you a safe chance to deliver vaginally because yeah. having, having, you know, major abdominal surgery is much riskier than you just having a vaginal birth. But then there's times when your baby's well-being trumps your major abdominal surgery, right? Right. Like yeah. Baby's heart rate goes down, or right. you know something happens, and we got to get the baby out. Absolutely, you need a C-section. But right. we've really been looking at the reasons that we're doing them, and you know, provider convenience. Um, we're working on that. Um, you know, it's Friday at five o'clock and, you know, you're still four centimeters and they just want to go home for the day. That's not as common. It's not as common as it was probably a decade ago. So, but it does happen. I felt like I had a little bit of that. Like my doctor had been up like, I think all night doing other deliveries and I wasn't really, I was fully dilated, but I wasn't making a lot of progress. And it was just kind of one of those things where it was like, I think my body was just tired from pushing because I was pushing for like two, three hours. And then, and again, like I said, I think it was like, if I had better support, possibly if my doctor was more like involved or, you know what I'm saying? There was no option of like, try this or try this, try a different position. It was basically just like, do this one position and keep trying this way (laughs) anyways. But you learn all these things after having the experience. And then you think about that's why people, women are like, well, maybe next time I can have a Mm -hmm. a natural birth because I really wanted to the first time, but it just didn't seem to work out. So. But it's important though, that I say this out loud for everybody, Um, you know, in the end, what we want is a healthy mom and a healthy baby to go home. So um, patients will come in and they'll have, you know, these 25 page birth plans and they, (laughs) you know, they want delayed cord clamping and they want the dad to do skin to skin for an hour. And, and it's all great. It really is. But at the end of the day, your baby is driving that Ferrari. Yes. So true. (laughs) So I have to make sure that I take care of you and we do what's right for both you and your baby. And a lot of times it is like that birth plan just gets destroyed. It's torpedoed and you end up in an emergency C-section. But at the end of the day, if I go home and you and your baby are healthy and fine, I feel good about that. And you should too as a mom. Totally. Yeah. Because there is some PTSD, I think, for some people that have, you know, especially an unexpected like C-section, like an emergency situation. Um, I saw that a lot in clinic where they were fearful that that would happen again and it wouldn't happen the way they wanted it to again. Um, And that's very real. Um, And again, taking the time to acknowledge that and letting that patient work through it is important. Yeah. But do you think it's just because they had expected it to go one way and they were so set on it going one way that it, that's why they kind of had the trauma. They're like, oh my God, I had no idea this could happen. And then, okay. They just had like the opposite experience of what they imagined. Yeah. A lot of it is that. And then a lot of it is just the fear of the unknown, right? That fear cycle, the, the less I understand something, the more fearful I am of it when it happens. And then that increases my pain, anxiety, and then, oh, by the way, take this baby home, breastfeed it. You're exhausted. Now your belly, you know, you have stitches or staples in your belly. So, yeah. um, just to name a few things. Yeah, just childbirth is is right. fun. <laughs> oh lordy, 
I couldn't imagine working in any other department in the hospital though. So this Oh, I bet that'd be, it's like, I, I think if I were to, I would too, like that would be a fun area to. Yeah. No, despite the trauma. She's like, no, well, it's just because I like, I work with children too. So like I did. So I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But then again, I probably wouldn't work in a hospital. That'd be the first. I couldn't. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I'll be, I don't know. No, I get it. A special type of person so thank you stephanie because oh, <laughs> it's not me <laughs> i love it i love it um, all right okay. i think we're if, we're gonna do a few more questions but we're i don't even know if we're halfway through the questions we i have. know we have so many so before i ask a couple more stephanie um can we get you back again to ask these other questions of course. yes okay. of course thank you okay. so much if you guys already knew what it took for all of us to get here to record this. Oh, holy hell. <laughs> it was, and Stephanie is- We're, not, so we're afraid to ask her to come back the same again. <laughs> no, you're totally fine. I love this because it's a great way to educate women about, yes. you know, their bodies. And it, and it's nice to be able to reach such a broad forum, you know, at mm. once. So. Well, and I think it's, and it's not just about our bodies, but just our experiences of the thing, like normalizing all of these experiences that we, you don't necessarily talk about with people with like hemorrhoids or, yeah. you know, douching or C-sections, right. you know, yeah. all that stuff that we don't, we're, yeah, we, we need to talk about it. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay, real quick. I just, I don't understand why are, how is douche, is there any, re, if it's no reason to use it, why is it on the market? And I have to say my little feminist brain goes, is it? Like there's money to be made. Like if, would it be happening to men if it was going to hurt them? Like it hurts women. No, absolutely. Because, uh, you know, and I'm just going to pick it summer's Eve, right? Like <laughs> they, they, they put the commercials on there and then they've taught us that we're dirty and that, you yes. know, we couldn't talk about it. And, you know, it's just, it's all a play on, on those. I, I feel like they're former societal norms, if you will. Like I yeah. think women are kind of like owning this, like, you know, we're not, I don't know. I just, we're not dirty. There's nothing wrong with this. Exactly. Also like more education. Like you said, yeah. it's a self cleansing or like we could, it cleans yeah. itself. It's a self cleaning <laughs> oven. That's yeah. it. Yes. Yeah. It's, and it's biology. I mean, yeah. good gracious, cut us a break. Like we've been through a lot. We've had to deal with this, like my 11 year old, right? Like mm-hmm. since she was 10, right? Like, come on. Seriously. That's uh-huh. yeah. The, when you really think about it, you forget how young we are when we start having to basically mature quote unquote yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. totally it's like yeah you get it maybe too soon and then you have to tr- then you're trying to like get pregnant or you're not or yeah. my god i got pregnant like it's one yeah. thing or another okay so we probably i think i'm gonna say this because now that i'm looking at this we have a series of menopause questions and we don't just have one question it's <laughs> As you can see, Stephanie, we have a lot of questions. I think that's important. I don't know if that's, yeah, that's talked about enough either. Yeah. And then we have um, some other kind of uh, best healthcare practices, what serves women, and definitely looking at women, how we change 20, 30s, and 40s, 50s, and above. Like, how do we take care of ourselves? and, And then we have a lot of birth control questions. Yeah, that's important. Yeah. So yeah, maybe this is a good place to stop. I might, we might have to stop because I'm looking at this sprinkle. Is there anything, if you, anything that you want to talk about that you thought I really would like to cover this for whatever reason now, or, um, put a pin in it and we'll have you come back. Um, we can, 
I'm trying to think one of the, one of the questions is on here is where it talks about, does BMI really matter? Mm. I actually just found a really great article, um, about, um, the keto diet and intermittent fasting and how, um, for those PCOSers, how it resets your insulin resistance, but we can cover that, um, when we talk about BMI, um, cool. just really good information in there. So yeah, yeah. Any articles or anything you have, we, sh- we can share them. Um, okay on our social media for people to, to locate. That would be great. Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to definitely do some shout out of no douching. Don't be a douche. Yes. I already promote that already. I'm just like, ladies. I thought it had decreased. Well, my question, it hasn't decreased at all in your experience professionally, or is it still, do you see it? It has. So it has, I, I would say, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to be like, oh, should I have said that? I will say there are fewer white women douching than previous. Um, In the African-American communities and the Hispanic Latina communities, it's still pretty prevalent. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I don't know if you can boil that down to education or if you can just say, nobody told me, you know what I mean? Like, was nobody comfortable enough to just say, stop it? Like, don't do this. Mm could be that that could be a yeah conversation is like how to how to allow like open conversations like that with your partner about yeah stuff I love talking about this stuff like my kid my poor kids right I think God knew that (laughs) I needed to have all girls but like you know it's 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 really fulfilling to me to teach not I mean just women in general whether it's my own kids or my patients you know about their bodies and the the things that I know because it's not I'm not a vault like I can hold this information but what good does it do me to have the information if I'm not giving it and sharing it with people so that's um I love talking about this stuff and I love talking about sex and different positions and yeah (laughs) we didn't even get into that right (laughs) yeah like okay here's let's okay I'm gonna ask one sexual position question you ask one Aaron and then we'll end it okay Okay. (laughs) what's the is there a best sexual position to get pregnant like is that an actual like Uh, thing um so I don't know that there's, okay, so if you're somebody who is just, you know, trying, um, I think it's probably more important just to stay um, laying down afterwards um, for a little bit. Um, If you're somebody who has, um, like if there's a, if your partner, your male partner has, um, you know, issues with like the mobility um, or volume of sperm, maybe like, you know, a rear entry position is probably better um, because it gets <laughs> closer, nice. um, but not necessarily. Um, okay. It's honestly about what brings you a great orgasm, like what works for you. And it may be a combination of things. So, cause that I've heard that is helpful too, is if the woman is has an orgasm it's actually is it because it's just open more open or what's the reason vibrates it up it does you guys could have seen Aaron (laughs) so when you have an orgasm it it's a legit thing when you have an orgasm your brain secretes um oxytocin right so you're it's this oh I love it's the same hormone that when you were breastfeeding your little human and you just fell in love with them all over again like that euphoric feeling that's oxytocin oxytocin and that's released when you have an orgasm. And one of the other things that does is it stimulates your uterus and your uterus is a giant muscle and it basically creates a con- 
contraction of that uterus and of the vaginal walls. And so it brings the, everything closer. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, right. it's a legit thing. Yeah. And you can feel it if you're mindful, you can, you can, and you're having great orgasms, which we should all be having great orgasms, but See, yeah. that's what we'll talk about next. Promise. Okay. Ladies, we'll talk I'm about not going to ask a question because now I have like seven. So I will just put a pin there. <laughs> no, you can't. I know. I'm like, I want to keep talking about orgasms. Okay. <laughs> I know. And I'm like, well, we might add more. We're going to add more questions now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, listeners. Yeah. If you uh, have any questions about orgasms. sex questions, we'll be yeah. asking Stephanie. We'll have a part two. Yes. Menopause, birth control, and more sex questions. Yes. Um, thank you, Stephanie, for yeah, being you. here. Like super yeah. informative, helpful. And I think definitely Bethany and I had our own, like, well, what about this? And you know, right, which yeah. is why and we didn't get to the other to questions. Anywhere. Yeah, no, yeah. it's good. It's good because I like to be able to like I like to feel like the things that we're talking about are like things that you know, back in the 60s, women would have been, <gasps> you know, like no. Yeah my body i deserve yeah. great orgasms like hello you know right. i get i get one shot at this so yeah right yeah yeah life's too short to have bad <laughs> right? orgasms yeah i don't know there's a bad one but you know yeah or none <laughs> or none yeah to not or not any. right yeah. yes to not yeah. have any yeah yeah so. i get surprised at how many women will say oh i had my first one and they'll say an age and i'm like oh is that like in my head i used to think oh that's when you start having sex like no Mm-hmm. I had sex 10 years before that. I'm like 10 years without orgasm. Like that's a why bother? Oh Easy. my goodness. But then you wonder why we have but, no libido, why we have no desire, right? Like, what are you doing to help me get there? Like, yeah. Education yeah. for men is totally, you know, or just, yeah, Ooh. men, uh, because I, well, because I was saying like, if you're with another woman, they probably know better. <laughs> like, you know, they understand they're not going to have the same issues that men do have, you know what I mean? Like yeah. understanding women's bodies and, uh, helping you get there. So (laughs) education for men is important also. (laughs) And it only makes, it only improves their sex life, right? Like exactly you out, right. If you want to get it more often, or you want to feel like the man, cause you just made your wife's toes curl up and her legs shake. Like, Hey, you know, let's talk about it. So yeah. Appeal to the audience. There you go. (laughs) All right. Well, stay tuned. We're going to do intuitive hits with nurse Stephanie. Um, if you want to hear her reading, join us and come back and we'll have a part two. So until next time, thank you everyone. Thank you. Bye.